Well, good morning, church. It is good to be together and good to sing the praises of God. Uh, we are God's people, as we just read. Um, and so it is good to gather together and to remember our Lord. Um, well, this morning we are continuing our series from garden to glory. And we're gonna spend time in several passages. And if you're not part of our church family, often we're preaching through uh, books of the Bible or particular uh, specific texts of scripture. But this, this series is a little bit different. We're looking at larger chunks of scripture um, and the, the overall story that the Bible tells. And so we're gonna spend our time in a couple different passages this morning, but uh, we'll land uh, in the one we just read in First Peter chapter, chapter two. Well, the, the classic 1984 movie, The Never-Ending Story, tells the story of a young boy named Bastion. And Bastion, in an effort to escape difficulty at home and bullies at school, he buries himself in a book called The Never-Ending Story. And through Bastion's eyes, we meet all these fantastical people, these creatures from this mythical place called Fantasia, where the, the world is crumbling and they need a hero to save the world. It's quite cool. It's a little bit creepy. I think it's like in that Jim Henson Muppet kind of phase of movies. Uh, but, but the whole story turns when suddenly Bastion realizes he's in the story. Not only is he in the story, but the princess is calling for him to save them. Now, for the past six weeks, we've been in a big story. We've been telling this gigantic story of God, tracking that story throughout his word. But God's story is not a history lesson. All along, the story was leading to the moment that we saw last week as the author himself entered human history. Last week, the Messiah King came into, he was incarnated. He took on flesh and died and rose again. But as we move forward into the rest of the New Testament, suddenly, like Bastion, we're just reading along and whoa, we're in the story. You and I have a part in the story of God. But unlike Bastion, we're not there to save the day. No, we're part of the redeemed, those that the King Jesus is rescuing. But as Jesus ushers in the final act, what the New Testament authors call the last days, just as we saw last week with Jesus, praise God, right? The themes from the Old Testament coming to fruition. The twists in this story as Jesus reveals himself and now as we see ourselves, the twists are better than an M. Night Shyamalan movie. They're, they're good, they're good. Jesus is the great twist. He's the fulfillment that we never saw coming. And now the people that he's gathering to himself, the church, this is a twist better than anyone could have imagined. So here we are. It's our part in the story. I hope you're ready. Hope you got your lines memorized. Uh, we'll see how you do. Uh, let's find out, all right? So as we finally reach the church age, the age of proclamation, we'll cover four steps as we consider our place in God's story. Number one, the king's departure. Number two, the king's mission. Number three, who are we in the story? And then lastly, how should this change us? So before we continue on, I wanna just go to the Lord. So would you join me? Would you ask God right where you are to, to just soften your own heart, maybe to slow you down this morning? Whatever it is that's distracted you 
whatever, that even as you sang, that your mind moved away from the beauty, the beauty of God and moved on to that other thing, would you ask him now to, to, to fix your attention upon Christ? So ask the Lord now uh, that you would hear from God's word. Pray also for your neighbor and for others in our church family uh, that we as a church might hear what God would have us say. And I lastly pray for me that I would speak only according to the scriptures and according to what God would say to us. Father, we praise you. We praise the Father. We praise the Son. We praise the Spirit. Three in one. Our, our triune God, we praise you. And would you lead us now through your word? Would you speak to us? Would you change us? As we know that you promised to do, Lord, would you change us from one glory to another that we might represent you? Do this for your glory and for our good today. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, number one, the king's departure. Think of all that we've seen so far, all, all of human history, really. The, the wreckage of the fall after the beauty of the garden, but then God's mercy. They, they would follow God for a minute, right? But then forget him and run to idols, God rescues his people over and over again, only for them to rebel, to disobey, to be back in captivity. It's this cycle, creation, sin, redemption, new creation. And, and we do it again, over and over. But as the Old Testament closed, it, you, you just have to think, like, is there a way out of this loop? Is, or is this just how God's people will be? And then Jesus shows up. He's like the decoder ring who makes it all make sense. Pastor Lawson walked us through this last week. I mean, just, I, I couldn't help but like to worship, it, to, see, to think of Jesus and all that he's fulfilled. He was the true and better Adam who actually obeyed the father. He was the promised offspring of Abraham. Yes, Isaac and the nation, they were Abraham's many offsprings. But as Galatians says, Jesus was the true offspring Singular, the offspring of the promise, the true nation, that was him. He was faithful in all the ways that Israel wasn't. It's like everything came together. And Jesus is on the scene and he says, the kingdom is here. And the disciples, they had a front row seat for the whole thing. They saw the power, the healings and the miracles, but they didn't fully get it, did they? They didn't get that he didn't come to conquer Rome. He came to conquer sin. They didn't comprehend that he hadn't come to punish evildoers this time. No, he came to lay himself down for evildoers, to die in their place, to atone for their sin. Even after Jesus died and rose again, you'd think, man, I bet they get it now. 
Like, he, I mean, he defeated death. He's, he's risen from the dead. But still, when he appears to them, what does he have to do? He has to go through the scriptures with them and, and show them that the whole story was pointing to him the whole time. That all the promises of scripture, all the sacrifices of the temple, all of it fulfilled in Christ. But even after all of that teaching, still they ask in Acts chapter one, right before he ascends to heaven, this is their question in Acts one, verse six. They ask him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Are you restoring the kingdom of Israel? We just wanna know, is that what's happening? Before you leave, are you still gonna punch Herod in the mouth? Are you still gonna push Rome out? I mean, we're glad that you died and rose again. We're glad that you, you are a sacrifice for us, but you're gonna free us from Rome, right? Aren't you gonna rule like King David? This is, this is baked into their question. That, that's what Messiahs do, right? Jesus, when are you gonna rule? And in verse seven, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the father has set by his own authority. Basically he's saying there, there's, there's something coming, but, but it's not for you to know. The earthly enemies of God will be destroyed. The father knows when it's all gonna happen, but it's not now. He's saying, he tells them a lot, stay alert, I'm coming. I'm coming again. And it's so easy to make fun of them as we, as we read their story. Uh, but even as we're reading it, don't you just go, man, that's a little anticlimactic. Like, was that it? The entire Bible building toward Jesus. He's the Messiah, the suffering servant, the king who will reign. And then he's, he's just gone. It's over. But this is exactly what he said would happen. John chapter eight, I am going away, he said. John chapter 14, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again to take you to myself. John chapter 16, in a little while, you will no longer see me. He's been telling them. He's been preparing them. And so this is where we find ourselves. It's the time of delay between Jesus' departure and his coming again. Jesus has ascended. The work is done. He sits down at the right hand of the Father and we wait. We wait. Some have used this delay in, in Christ's return as a means to ridicule Christianity, to say it's not, it's not real. But we must consider why, why? Why does he leave? Why, what is this period of delay about? Because in just a minute, his departure is not going to seem to phase his disciples for, for long. But why, what makes the difference for them? Well, he says one more thing before he ascends to the Father and what he's about to share, I believe, changes everything. He has a bigger project in mind than the kingdom of Israel, which leads to number two, the king's mission. Look now at Acts 1.8. Here we realize the king is not abdicating at all. No, instead he's about to share with human beings his spirit and his mission. What does Jesus say? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's reiterating this promise. He has already said, look, it's better for you if I go. Like the, the comforter will come. He will be your counselor. He will guide you in truth. In fact, only days before this, right after Jesus rose from the dead, do you remember what, what, what happened as Jesus showed up to the room where they were hiding? 
He showed them his scars and, and proved to them that he was really alive. And, and look at what he said in John chapter 20. It's in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Here it is. He said, that's his mission. He's setting up, up, up for the mission. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So there it is again, spirit, mission. I'm sending you, he says. But isn't this like strange that he breathed on them? Breathing on people, I wouldn't recommend it. It's, it's unless, unless they want that, just don't do it. Uh, but if you've paid attention to the whole story, where has God breathed on someone before? Back all the way at the beginning, right? In Genesis chapter two, as God made Adam, we read, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. God made a new man, the first man. Then he made woman. And what did he command to these, these first two human beings? Filled with his life-giving breath, what did he command to them? He said, be fruitful and multiply. Go and make more people. And now here in John, what does, he, what does Jesus do? He breathed on his disciples and said, receive the spirit. God breathed on dirt, gave life to the first man, and now Jesus breathes on his disciples. And by his spirit, he is gonna give them life. These disciples are his new creation in the world. Just like with Adam, Jesus is recreating the world through these men soon to be filled with his life-giving spirit. And check this, what does he tell them to do once the spirit comes? He says, therefore, go and make disciples. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth with more Christ followers, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Fill the earth, not simply with flesh and blood, now fill the earth now with spiritual children, with more people who love and follow Jesus. This, this is the mission. This is the mission he's given. And how will it work? Look, now go back to Acts. He, 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 he continues on in Acts, right before he ascends. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Once you have a spirit, this is what he says will happen. And you will be my witnesses. You'll be empowered for this mission. Isn't this amazing? Like this is how Jesus, even though he's leaving, can say, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm still with you. Jesus is sending the third member of the Trinity. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. But now God is with them, even as he leaves, indwelling them by his spirit. So you, you go, okay, well, what does this have to do with us? If you are a Christian now, because of these first Holy Spirit-filled disciples, they left that hill as Jesus ascended. And 10 days later, the Spirit came upon them and at a Jewish harvest festival called Pentecost, they began their task as witnesses. The Pentecost festival drew Jews from across the known world, many different languages spoken, and by the power of the Spirit, the apostles began to preach, and all the people there miraculously understand what they're saying. They're coming from all over the place. They speak all these different languages, but they all can hear. It's like, it's like an undoing of the Tower of Babel. They, there's no more confusion as they speak. Thousands repent and turn to Jesus. 
And from there, these Jewish converts, convinced now of who Jesus is, along with the apostles, they, they experience crazy unity that we read about in Acts chapter two. And then for the rest of the book of Acts, they fulfill exactly what Jesus promised there in Acts 1.8. And this will be the whole rest of the book. They began to proclaim the gospel. What, where did he say? In Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, churches being planted all along the way, missionaries sent all around the region. And the book ends with Paul and Rome, basically the biggest international hub in the known world. And, and this beautiful community of believers is formed. Amazingly, by the, end, by the end of Acts, it's formed. And it's not all Jews. God has sent them to the nations there at the end of Acts 1.8. He said, I want you to go to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. That's you and me. We're the ends of the earth. You and me. Gentiles brought into the people of God. We sang it this morning. The church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame and the gospel truth of old shall not kneel, shall not faint. It goes on and on. It's why you're here. And it's not over. Even as the apostolic generation dies out, what does Paul say to young Timothy? He says, keep it going. Fan into flame your gift and preach the word in season and out. And the mission goes on. Acts 1.8, still unfolding. We follow in their footsteps. We carry the same mission. We are empowered by the very same spirit. We are witnesses. This is the age of proclamation. And God has made us witnesses. So why? Why must we wait? Why must we wait for Christ to come back to establish his kingdom? Listen, I, I, don't, I can't know the mind of God fully. But 2 Peter 3 tells us this, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Still today, in his patience, just like he patiently waited for you, patiently waited for me, even today, he continues drawing men and women. He continues drawing young, young men, young women, girls, boys to himself. So we proclaim the gospel. We, we continue to proclaim it. And we see people come to know Christ. Next month, we'll see more baptized. We're living it out. We live in the age of proclamation. So number three, who are we in the story? Well, we aren't just a bunch of individuals proclaiming. And we, we read that everywhere the gospel message goes, they start churches. Jesus is building something bigger than, than just single people, individuals. And we go, yeah, yeah, I know the church. You're, I know what you're gonna tell us. Uh, but listen, the church is an explosive idea when we get to the New Testament. Like we have this little microscopic view of the church. Like, yeah, I go to this place. I go to, this, I go to the 11 a.m. or the 9 a.m. service. Uh, I go to Redeemer. Um, maybe some of you uh, grew up in the church and you're like, yeah, church is just kind of what I do. I don't know, it's a little hokey. Uh, but I'm a member. I try to go if I'm not too busy. Uh, it's, you know, but the important thing is, is me and Jesus, I, I'm, I'm still walking with Jesus. The New Testament doesn't allow this kind of shallow view of the church. Like I, I want to, and so I hope today, as we, just through most of the rest of our time, I want to, I want us to see the amazing community that Jesus was building us to be. 
and the implications that has for us. We have been following God's people since Abraham, right? God called out Abraham and everything God was building with Abraham's family, with the nation of Israel. The New Testament tells us that's being fulfilled and completed now in the church. The church hasn't replaced Israel. God is simply showing us his true people were always those who trusted in his salvation. Those who received his Messiah King. And when you read the New Testament through that lens, you begin to see the language everywhere. Let me show you what I mean. We just read it, 1 Peter chapter two. I'll go back a couple verses, starting in verse two. This is from the apostle Peter. So from one of those guys that was on the hill as Jesus ascended, this is what he writes. He tells them, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's, he's, quoting, he's quoting scripture all throughout here. If you've tasted that the Lord, the Lord is good, that's Psalm 34. He's saying, if you're like the Old Testament saints that have tasted and seen the goodness of God, then press on in his word. No, verse four, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God. He's saying, he's saying we're, we're, we have that in common with Jesus. We're cast aside, rejected. Look what he says in verse five. As you come to him, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The language in this text is wild. Remember how God's people wept because they longed for the better temple, for a place for God to dwell with them. Now, Peter says, both to Jew and Gentile Christians, he speaks to the church and he says this, you are the new temple of God. The new temple of God. You and I, we were not a choice stone like the ethnic Jews of old. No, Paul, Paul will say we're adopted sons, but sons nonetheless. And you are being used to build the holy place of God. Can you believe that? Only the choicest stones would have been used. Israel had been God's chosen ones. But guess what? Jesus was the true chosen one and he was rejected for you. And now he is the cornerstone. He's the first stone of a new temple. And so as you come to him, you're the stones in the building. Your life stacked upon the lives of those around you who have trusted Christ. And together, all of us who come to him, he's building us into something. You know, when you see a new building going up and you know, we, we prepare ourselves when you see it, you're like, oh, it's probably another bank. Uh, <laughs> Or it, lately, it's like, it's probably another car wash. I mean, that's like the first brick goes up and I'm like, it's probably a car wash. Um, but then there's the surprise. Oh, wait, it's a Torchies. Score. Peter is saying, can you believe it? You, you didn't look like much. It didn't look like much when it was started. But do you know what God is making out of you? A temple, a spiritual house. Friends, we are the place of God's dwelling. Isn't that bonkers? And we will be holy, set apart by him for his use. That means we can draw near to him because of Christ and we will be accepted. How? Because Jesus makes us righteous. He was the sacrifice. So we can serve him. We can love him. 
And God receives us because of Christ. We're, we're priests together. We get to serve one another. We don't need an, another person between us and the Lord. We have Jesus. Well, that would be enough. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And then he tells him, you are God's family. You're God's family. Not only are you being built into the dwelling place of God in the world, listen to what he says. In verse nine, he says, but you are a chosen race. Now, this is, this is a lot of, again, a lot of Old Testament quotations. He's pointing back to Deuteronomy 7, where, where uh, God said, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession. And in Deuteronomy 10, he said, he chose you out of all the peoples of the earth. The, the word race here is almost too big. Like, I think we hear it and we just kind of go to these huge categories. It's, the, the word is really more a word of family, of offspring, of generation. The emphasis is you belong to him. You're his people. You're his kin. You're kin with, with the Lord Jesus. You've been brought into the family of the perfect son of God. And the New Testament is full of this language, isn't it? The apostle John said it to us in 1 John 3. See what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. And we are. Paul told Timothy, I'm teaching you how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. It's God's house. We are together his household. And then there's this beauty from Romans chapter eight. For all those led by God's spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That's unbelievable. We're co-heirs with Christ. We get to inherit all that Christ has. That, that, it, it's off the charts. Israel had been God's chosen family, but Redeemer Church, because of Christ, God is our father. We're part of the chosen family now. We're not stepchildren, we're sons and daughters. All who turn to Christ are his chosen ones. What else? What else is there, Peter? He goes on, you are God's nation. He goes on in verse nine, you're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. This is more Old Testament that he's quoting. This is Exodus chapter 19. What did God tell Israel? He said, if you remain in my covenant, you will be my kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In verse five, just a verse earlier, he said there, you will be my own possession. And now here through Peter, he assigns those same titles to us. It's wild. We've been reading about this nation for the whole Bible. And now we're in the story. We're part of it. Some, some say that we are the church is the kind of parenthetical afterthought in God's economy. Like the Jews rejected him, so God found him some backup people. Like God was saying, I, I, guess, I guess I could say people from all nations. But no, Peter said they were destined for this. This was always the plan. 
This was his plan because of the worship problem that we saw over and over again in Israel. Because they refused to obey, they were destined to be swept into exile. But the Lord allowed for this. Why? Because he was building an international church, an international people, a multi-ethnic people of God. Israel wouldn't be just an ethnic people anymore. The people of God, his church, his holy nation. Now it's big enough for you, big enough for me, big enough for all peoples. Remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 10. He said, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. One people of God united under Christ. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. I think if we see it in this light, we can see how incredibly mind-blowing that is for those who would read it. Our God is making one glorious peoples, one glorious nation, and we are part of it. So why, for what purpose? Look at the rest of 1 Peter 2, verse nine. So that, there's your purpose clause. So that, what's his purpose? What's his purpose for us? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are now, as part of the nation, what is our role? We are like the riders on our horses, sprinting to the far ends of the land, proclaiming the good news. The war is over. The battle is won. The king has conquered and he has offered everyone peace. He's offered everyone freedom. So receive his freedom now. Be reconciled to him now. And who needs to hear such a message? Everyone. Everyone. Believers and unbelievers alike. We proclaim it to one another every week. Each week, we we must believe it again. So long as it's called today, we preach the gospel to one another. We proclaim the excellencies of God to each other. And by his grace, we go to the nations. We go to uh, everywhere he sent us, to all peoples. And we say, turn to Jesus and he'll make you alive. And finally, we see that we are the recipients of the new covenant. We're the recipients of the new covenant. The Jews had been heirs of all these promises of God, all these covenants, but now the church is the landing place. Peter ends up in verse 10. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. You know, we've talked about this worship problem that God's people have had, but, he, but the book of Hebrews I love is, is a book about worship. And it's a book about God's people coming to him. All the sacrifices of Israel, Hebrews tells us, couldn't fix the worship problem. That's why Jesus, the perfect lamb, died once for all, the just for the unjust. This is the new covenant, the new and better promise of God, Hebrews calls it. We read it every week. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews 10, I believe, spells out this new covenant by quoting from the Old Testament. Hebrews says, For by one offering he has perfected forever 
those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the, <clears throat> this is the covenant I will make with them <clears throat> after those days, the Lord says. So he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah. He says, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Saying the work of grace, the work of forgiveness of sins is done. There's no longer an offering. It's finished. And this new covenant, what a promise. Jesus Christ once for all paid for sins. Yes, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. He has made us right. He sees us as justified, as holy. But this promise also says that even now we're being saved from sin's power in our life. He's changing us from one glory to another. All with the hopes that one day we will be saved forever from the presence of sin. This is the new covenant of the promise of God for all who are his children, that eternal life is coming. You will be made right. Redeemer, we are in the story. We're with all the saints who have ever trusted the Lord, who have ever looked to Jesus all throughout the ages. And so we are now God's people, all those who have trusted in Christ. We are God's place, the church as the new temple, the holy people for his dwelling. And we live under God's rule and blessing because of the new covenant the Holy Spirit now leads us. No, it's no longer we who live, Galatians says, but Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, so number four, how should this change us? How should this change us? I'm gonna give us seven implications for our lives as God's people. I'm not gonna unpack all these really fully, uh, but I'm just gonna give us seven, seven implications. Number one, because the gospel makes us family, we should be unexplainably committed to each other. It should not make sense how much we are united to one another. Paul says we're like members of a body. When one of our members grieves, we all grieve. When one of us rejoices, we all rejoice. Several dear friends in our church have lost loved ones recently. So what do we do? We, we rally to their side. We grieve with them. Our friends, the Bifords, are sick this morning. I think, with, and, and they're, they, they care for uh, boys and girls country. They care for a house full of boys. And, and so we rally. I, we, I got our text from Jen Harkless. Well, can we get some meals together for them? They got all these boys to care for. We injure our backs helping each other move. Even though... They probably think you should have paid for movers. He speaks to himself. Sorry, Steve. Uh, uh, we, we encourage each other. We teach and we correct each other. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembling together. Because there's no more precious people to be around in the world. So be here. Be here on Sundays. Don't skip your life group just because you're tired. Like, Why? Because we need to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness 
And we need to hear those excellencies again and again and again. Number two, the gospel makes an international family. So our unity should be strange. Through the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility is brought down. Galatians 3 says, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, a slave or free, male and female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. This means we are an unlikely bunch. The church is like cats and dogs living together. When we come to Jesus, all, other, all of our other identities take a back seat. This isn't about fake efforts at at diversity or intersectionality. Uh, No, it, it means my primary identity is not all of my other things. It's not my political party. It's not my ethnicity. It's not my school choice. No, the church of Jesus is for different languages and tribes and nations all coming together. I'm talking about black and white and brown and Asian brothers and sisters, not just in unison, but in harmony with each other. We long to see the gospel of Jesus go to all of Tomball, all of Houston. And as that happens, the Lord will unite us together and we'll all be really different. I'm talking Democrats and Republicans, moderates and libertarians united together because of Christ, not hating each other. The church came to be where there were Romans and Jews and Greeks, slave and free. You think they agreed on politics? The church is rich and poor, men and women, homeschool, public school, young and old, all together because of Christ. You know, in our church, I was just doing the math, we have six different of the generations in our church. Where else do you get to experience that, first of all? the, the silent generation, the boomers, the Gen Xers, the millennials, Gen Z, Gen Alpha. I think that's the, who the, the little guys are now. Uh, all of us, we're all, all those re- generations are here. You think we all think about the world the same way? But here's what we do have. The name of Jesus is our song. Whether you are nine or 90, the only way you got in here, the only way you came into the family was by the precious blood of Christ. He's the center of all that we do. Number three, as those who were strangers to the promise, we should be the most eager to invite the lost and the outcast to Jesus. There is no greater mission. Have you been reconciled to God? Has he forgiven your sins? Were you his enemy, but now his friend? Then he calls you now. He calls you to your neighbors, your workplaces, to the poor, to your classmates, to the darkest corners of of our city, to the young person struggling with sexual identity, to the boomer who has gained wealth but didn't satisfy their soul, to to the Buddhists in Thailand, to the Muslims in Turkey and Palestine, to the post-Christian affluent West, to the broken family in Houston's near North Side, to the new homeowners in Magnolia, to the teachers of Tomball Elementary. We are ambassadors for the king. And we're called to go to all peoples, all nations. Number four, as forgiven sinners, we should be exceedingly humble. There are no prima donnas in the church. The gospel levels the playing field. 
I'm so encouraged. I see this so often in our church when I see someone who's very well established in their life, maybe, maybe retired even, nothing that they've got to do. And what do they do? They're spending their time helping someone, helping someone find a place to live, helping someone find a car to drive, helping someone get a job. This is, I mean, nowhere else does this happen. This is because of the gospel. The gospel makes no one too good to serve. No one too good to be back in the children's ministry. God turns sinners into servants. Number five, as sons and daughters of the Father, we should be joyful in the face of suffering. Joy and suffering might be one of the most profound things about the church. We, if we truly believe that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, then we can believe that our suffering is never wasted, that the Lord is bringing about something in us And with God as our father, we can say so much as that death is gain. That makes us unshakable. It makes us joyful. Even as we we weep, we were joyful people. Number six, as recipients of mercy from God, we should be eager to kill our own sin. We, that mean, because of the mercy of God, because of the new covenant, we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide from each other. We don't have to hide from the Lord. Why? Because we are already approved in Christ. We already have his love. So we can confess our sin. We can seek to kill it. We obey now not to gain God's approval, but because, out of, because we love him. Because we love him. And, we're, and I think the church of Jesus is marked by being more eager to kill our own sin rather than the sins of others. And then lastly, number seven, as royal citizens of heaven, we should be okay with feeling like exiles on the earth. This truth tells us that this earth is not home. This earth as it is, is not our home. And that means we will feel relationally estranged from neighbors and people in the world. Even though we try to to reach out, we'll feel estranged. And and increasingly, we're gonna feel politically homeless. But by his grace, being in exile unites us even more so to the Christian family. Being in exile draws us even more to look to the true King, Jesus. Jesus. And because he's coming soon again, we, we don't lose hope. We have hope that endures. Church family, what an honor it is to be a part of the people of God. Praise God that he wrote us into his story. May we come to truly know and believe what a gift this is. God will use the very people in this room and the members of our church that aren't in this room, he will use those people in your life to draw you away from meaningless things and to stir your affections for the Lord Jesus. May we help one another remember our love, the one who died for us. May we go together as he sends us out to the lost and may he unite us together under the one name, the name above every name, our King Jesus. Let's pray.
Well, Father, we thank you. What a kindness you have shown to us. What a mercy we have received. It's grace upon grace. We didn't deserve forgiveness, much less a family. Lord, you are so kind to those who did not seek you. But in your mercy, you first loved us. You first sought us. And so Lord, would you, would you fan into flame in us desire to serve you, desire to know you more, desire to see more of your people uh, as, as the, the beautiful gift that they are. Lord, would, would you do this in us so that we might become excellent ambassadors for you so that many more might know you and experience all these gifts that you give. Lord, make us a church like that. It, it only happens as your spirit leads. So would you do it in us? right where you are, just, just ask the Lord, God, would you help me? Would you help me to walk as one of your children? Where you don't have a, a where maybe you've had a diminished view of the church or a diminished view of God's grace through the risen Jesus. Would you ask the Spirit now to wake me up? Help me to believe. Draw me back to my first love. Lord, we need you pray this in Christ's name.